Hello, and welcome to a Trace Crossing podcast on Grieving Well. My name is James Underwood, and I'll be walking with you as we journey through C.S. Lewis's chronicles of his own grief, simply titled A Grief Observed. In this, he journeys through the loss of his beloved wife. But this week, we will delve into background matter. We're going to do things like just discuss what it means when we say grief. What does Scripture say about it? And also look at why Lewis's situation is a bit different, uh, his own late-in-life journey into marriage, um, marriage that he wasn't even looking for, and the peculiar circumstances that surround his loss. So before anything else, though, I want us to talk about what it is that we mean when we say grief. What do we mean when we say that? Well, the primary definition of grief is usually tied to sorrow that's produced by the loss of a loved one. And probably everybody that's listening to this, you've experienced this at some point. It may have been years ago. Some of you, unfortunately, you may be there right now. Some of you may be headed there. But you know what grief from a loved one's death is. You know how bitter that can be. You know how difficult that is. But there's another way that we use grief. And that's the sense in which we lose anything that's near, dear to our hearts, uh, so that it feels like it's the loss of a loved one. It might be a career. It might be when someone, for example, maybe they lose a limb, uh, someone who goes through a painful divorce. You know, I also think about things like a child being sentenced to prison, getting a cancer diagnosis on a loved one. And the similarity in these is, again, that you, you lose something so near, so dear to you, that it affects your life for weeks, months, years to come. And sometimes the grief can be so deep, it can be so painful, it either never leaves, or at least it feels like it never leaves. It keeps popping back up. Well, Scripture speaks to grief in numerous places, and we're going to look at a lot of those over the next few weeks. For example, Psalm 31. In the ESV, we see David say, "'Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress.'" My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. David knew what grief was. Notice here, he didn't bottle it up. He didn't hide it. He didn't say, oh, I'm stronger than that. He didn't say, oh, the joy of the Lord will keep me from feeling grief. Instead, he took it to God. He took it, as the old hymn says, he took it to the Lord in prayer. So we've talked a bit about what grief is and what Scripture says about it. Now let's look a little bit about who this class is for. Obviously, you know, it'll probably have the most profound and immediate effects on those who are currently experiencing grief even now. But again, though, let's not limit this to the loss of a loved one. This is 2020, right? We're in a COVID world. And even when we go into the post-COVID world, we have people here in our church who have lost family members, people who have lost jobs, homes, securities, hopes. And these losses can leave scars. They can leave damage on someone that is so brutal, that is so intense, that it affects your life. It affects how you view the world. It affects how you feel. It wakes you up in the middle of the night. It keeps you from sleeping. It puts you to sleep too quickly. But these losses can have devastating effects. So the thing is, also, you don't need to be grieving currently to benefit from this. I hope that this opens your eyes as well to those who are grieving around you. If you're not currently facing loss, I promise you, you're surrounded by people who are. Some you may realize that they are. Some you may never know. There are some folks around you that are experiencing loss, but they put on the the happy smile, right? They put on the mask. They go to work. They go to church. 
there are people in the pew next to you. Or, of course, here at Trace Crossing, not the pew, but in the chair. But there are people next to you. There are people who are singing just down the aisle from you. There are neighbors, there are co-workers who are experiencing deep loss. They're experiencing deep grief, and they need somebody. They need someone to speak the gospel into their lives. You know, again, with us being 2020, um, at least in my lifetime, I was born in 1982, I've never known a year to have so much loss. I've never known a year to have so much pain, at least on for the average person. Probably since World War II, you know, this is the most loss that people have seen. So stick around, if not for yourself, then, you know, hopefully at least for someone else. Let's also talk for just a moment, though. I'll let you know here about why I personally am addressing this topic. And it has to do with the fact that I'm walking through this process myself. I lost my mom back in mid-May, and it was after a a two-and-a-half-year battle with cancer. Uh, And She ended up passing away just two months into the COVID crisis at a time when um, only one person was allowed at her bedside. Uh, And uh, and even then, as she was actually passing away, about 30 minutes before she passed away, they, they allowed three of us to be there in the room with her as she passed. But I was there with her for several hours, just me by myself. you know, also at a time when uh, her, for example, her funeral had to be limited to a small graveside service. We had a very small visitation, had to limit the number of people who could come in. And so, you know, this is something I'm walking through. And, and the reason, you know, me personally, the reason I want to share this as well is because of something that Paul says in Second Corinthians 1. Here again in the ESV, he says, he speaks of the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Now, If we stopped right there, that would be good news. That would be something worth writing about. That would be something worth joy, that He is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction. But this being Paul, he keeps talking. He keeps adding stuff to this. And here he explains why God does this. Now, there are multiple reasons, I believe, that God comforts us. But Paul here, he explains at least one reason for this comfort— Now, what we might expect coming after this might be so that we would get saved, so that we would feel joy in God, so that God would be glorified. Those are all great reasons. But here, the reason that he gives is he says that we are comforted so that we may be able to comfort those who are in in any affliction. That's the gospel. That is Christian life. Taking our griefs and finding comfort in God and then transforming that, rolling that into something else, redemption. I mean, is there anything that's more Christian, that is more gospel-oriented than redeeming the ugly into beautiful, turning ashes into beauty? This is what we're talking about here. In the midst of our grief, we can find comfort, and then we can leverage that into something greater. God can commandeer Satan's vehicle, right? I mean, he can commandeer where Satan's headed with our grief, and he can turn it into something good. Paul goes on to say in the next verse, so that that was verse 4 of chapter 1. Now in verse 5 he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Wow, what an amazing way to look at life. If I'm afflicted... It's for you guys. And then he says, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. What an amazing way to view that. So that is my prayer for everyone that's listening now. I have two prayers for you. One, that if you are walking through grief, I pray that my comfort would translate over to you. I pray that you would feel comforted 
through the comfort that I've received, but also to every Christian that's listening. Let that also be the case for you. I know every Christian that's listening, you have faced grief. If you're not facing this battle now, face it for others. Walk with them. Hold them up. Comfort them as you have been comforted. Now, next, I want us to look a little bit at a background of Lewis's book here because, uh, you know, reading his book, it, it can be read by itself, but I want to spend just a few minutes explaining Lewis's particular situation because he did have an odd situation in writing about his wife's death. Uh, well, for most of his life, Lewis was your typical bachelor. He was your typical British bachelor. And other than one possible romance, scholars disagree about that, but other than one possible romance, he was we know for sure he was never married. Uh, he dodged the old proverbial bullet until he was in his late 50s. So imagine, he's went all the way into his late 50s without ever being married, never really going on a date, never having any type of romantic relationship. But at this time, he was in a letter-writing correspondence with an American poet named Joy Davidman Gresham, who, at least on the surface, uh, she stood for a lot of things that Lewis detested. She had once been an atheist. Uh, she had also been a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, not just kind of, oh, I like communist ideals, but she was literally a member of the party. Uh, more importantly, though, she was an American in a lot of senses of the word, and for the good old British Lewis, those two things did not mesh very well together. But the thing was, as he was reading the letters that she would send him, because she had read his works, uh, she had even, if we, if we might not say that she exactly came to Christ, she at least was maturing in Christ through reading Lewis. So she begins reading him, or rather writing him letters, and uh, her brilliance stood out to him. Uh, he couldn't help but admire this sharp mind, this deep insight that she had. So eventually, she comes to visit England. Uh, she brings her two sons with her, and they meet up with Lewis. They finally meet. The thing is, though, she happened to leave her husband at home back in America. Uh, important detail, right? Well, upon meeting her, Lewis was even more impressed. But we know at this point he felt nothing in the sense of romance. It was purely friendship. It was purely platonic. In fact, uh, even at this point, Lewis still, he dismissed the notion of romantic love as just an invention of the Middle Ages. It was too abstract for him. Um, so he, he wasn't much for the, way, for, the, uh, for the sense of romantic love. He definitely had no plans to ever get married. Well, eventually, though, Joy, she ends up leaving America because uh, she is, in part, at least, uh, running away from her abusive uh, husband. He was abusive both uh, mentally, uh, physically, uh, emotionally. In, in every sense of the word, he was abusive to both her and her sons. Uh, he was also an alcoholic who refused to receive any help. And so he would go on drunk binges and uh, abuse both her and the boys. So she moves to England, she and the boys do, um, hoping to be able to uh, move there permanently. And again, during this time, she and Lewis, they remained friends. But that, that was all there was to it. However, the British government ends up denying her visa. And it's because of her previous uh, affiliation with the Communist Party. At that time, Britain said, no, thank you. We don't want communists. So even though she was no longer a part of that, they denied her visa. And this is where Lewis steps in. Lewis, who again, felt nothing in the romantic sense, he said what he would do was he would marry Joy. 
Uh, he would marry her just in order to keep her in the country. So they went to the courthouse, had a purely civil ceremony. It was just uh, the two of them, hardly any. There was just a witness and then someone there at the courthouse to record that the marriage had happened. They didn't publicize it, and they actually continued to live in their own separate houses. Uh, they never spent the night with one another or anything like that. And so their marriage at first was just one of purely uh, helping her to stay in the country, which also I think you know speaks pretty highly of him that he would that he would go to that kind of length for uh, friendship. It's not something I would do, uh, but Lewis did that. Well, less than a year after this purely civil uh, wedding ceremony, Joy was in her own kitchen at home by herself when uh, she was simply walking through the kitchen and her leg broke from underneath her, uh, just just under the weight of her body. And although now she was a very a very slim woman, uh, she was in no way overweight. So this you know this made no sense. Uh, Lewis rushed to the hospital uh, because she ended up being taken there. He rushed there to see her and gets news from the doctor of a terminal diagnosis uh, with the doctor saying she has days, maybe weeks to live. And it's at this point that the uh, formerly stoic Lewis, the former man who had been a bachelor all his life, he couldn't stand it any longer. And so not too long after she was admitted to the hospital, he calls up someone uh, brings a minister to her hospital bedside, and they have a proper wedding ceremony. Uh, I say proper, obviously, they're not able to, you know, get married in the chapel, that type of thing, but he wanted a real ceremony that was real this time. One, uh, because it, he he professed her love for her, his, his love for her. Um, so over the next uh, few months, thankfully, the original diagnosis of of weeks uh, turns into months, and she ended up living for a stretch of actually three years. Uh, she saw an extended remission during this time, saw what she believed and what Lewis believed to be an actual healing during this time. They ended up even um, traveling to Greece and him having, uh, if not the happiest moments of his life, at least among the happiest moments. And, uh, you know, most people would argue this was the happiest time of his life. He had, if you'll excuse the pun, he had found joy, right? He had finally found um, that joy, and, and he believed, too, that he even knew God more through knowing her. Unfortunately, though, again, I mentioned the, the number three years for a reason, because at the end of that three years, her cancer returned aggressively. Uh, it did not take too long before she passed away in the summer of uh, 1960. And this is this then brings us though to the book that we're going to be going through, and I would uh, highly encourage you if you haven't already try to get a copy of the book uh, either physically or you can get it on Kindle as well. But in this book, what we get is we get C.S. Lewis after his wife's death, and we get a different man than we're used to when we hear about C.S. Lewis. Uh, after Joy's death, he didn't seem like the same man any longer. So here's the thing I want you to think about. This had been the man who had brought countless children laughs, glimpses of Christ through his Chronicles of Narnia. This was a man whose he, through a series of radio talks, had brought comfort to millions of British citizens during the London Blitz and the air raids of World War II. This was a man who is often considered the face of Christianity for the 20th century, a man who wrote so many declarations on the comforts of God's love. 
And yet what we find in these journals, at least especially towards the beginning and really throughout in different places, we find a man who is grieving. We find a man who is in a sorrow so deep that he actually questions himself within himself if God is truly good after all. He begins journaling these doubts and frustrations, believing that really, you know, I mean, because think about it. Who could he talk to? He's C.S. Lewis, right? I mean, everybody knows him as, you know, he's a delegate. He's an ambassador for Christianity. How can he ever vent? How can he ever put out there what it is that he's facing? So instead, he writes. He writes those things down. And while I'm thinking about it right here, let me mention to you, there is one. So I'm, I'm glad that he journaled. I'm glad that he wrote those things down. But if you ever feel that way, you have people, whether it's in the church, whether it's in your family. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm here. I'm here and would love to listen to anyone. There is never, as you know, as Brother Matthew so often reminds us on Sunday mornings, we're not here to perform. We're not here to put on a mask. We're not here to impress God. And whatever it is that we're feeling towards God, it's so much better to get that out. You know, we talked about that in Psalm 31 with David. He didn't bottle up his grief. He poured it out before God. He gave it to God. He laid it at his feet. I would ask that you do that as well. No matter how deep your sorrow is, no matter how bad you think your doubt of God is, it's not so bad that he is... (laughs) that he's surprised by it. And also, as a fellow Christian, I'm telling you, I understand, and I would be glad to listen. Our pastoral staff would be glad to listen. Our elders would be glad to listen. We would love to listen to you in your grief. And so Lewis, though, he he does journal this. So it's probably no surprise that Lewis originally intended these journals to be private, right? I mean, uh, and I say that as well so that you recognize, because as you read it, I, I want you to know that this is not a man who was writing for an audience other than God. He originally just wrote these journals between him and God. He was not trying to publish. Uh, in fact, it was originally his his wish uh, to not publish these. Finally, when some friends found out what he had journaled and and saw what the um, saw the poetry within them, saw the the honesty, the truth that was within them. Uh, they finally talked him into publishing, but originally he would only he wouldn't publish under his own name, so he published under the pseudonym N. W. Clerk. Um, also, to kind of help you as you read it, you still see some other signs from when he originally wrote the book that he had changed a couple of things so that nobody would recognize that it was him. So you'll often see uh, false names in there. For example, instead of uh, Joy, instead of having her name in there, you'll see just the letter H with a dot, so like the initial H. Um, So that is what that means when you see that. Now, I want to warn you, though, these writings, they can be alarming at times. Uh, with Lewis wondering out loud whether God can truly be trusted. He questions at times the authenticity of God's love. But like in so many of the Psalms, what you see with David so often, a bit of a spoiler alert here, but Lewis, of course, by the end of the book, by the end of his journaling process, he comes to the realization God actually does care. He comes to the realization that God actually does love no matter how he feels on the inside, no matter what it seems like. So I'm going to tell you, though, I find comfort in that. I would rather read someone who is honestly and truthfully grappling with what's going on in the world and bringing that to God than someone that puts on a false 
sense of, of holiness. Um, if I could quote here for a moment, one of my former professors, Douglas Bain, who often talked about as far as what people, what churches really need in a minister, what they really need in a pastor. He often said they don't need a knight in shining armor. They need a bleeding minister. They need to see someone who who is bleeding, who has bled, and who knows the way out. They don't need perfection. They need to see a fellow human being, and that's what we see in this book. That's what we see in these journal writings is we see a man who was sinful. We see a man who was limited. We see a man who was grieving, and in humanity, in his human grief, he brought that to God. In his human human grief, he recognized his own frailty, and he laid that at God's feet. So, if you're still along with me for the ride here, we'll look next time at the first half of chapter 1, where, among many other things, Lewis notably remarks that coming to God can feel like banging on a door and having God not only ignore you, but even to hear Him on the other side bolt and double bolt the lock to keep you from getting in. So this is the kind of thing that we're going to be seeing. Now again, just to... Uh, just to uh, calm any nerves out there, Lewis changes his mind by the end of the book. But again, he is he is putting out there how he is truly feeling, how what is really going on inside of him, and he's laying that out. So I want to conclude this session by reminding you of three things. First, grief is real, and it's painful, and it often can last a while. Never belittle yourself for feeling like you do. Never think, oh, I'm a bad person because I am grieving. Oh, I'm a bad person because it's really difficult to feel God right now. Now, you should, of course, on the other side of that, don't let it stay there either. You search for God. You seek for Him. You wait on Him. But never feel like, I need to change how I feel or I need to manipulate myself. That, that's one of the dangers, right, is you can end up feeling like you've got to force yourself it should not be that way. So grief is real. It's painful. It's long-lasting so often. Second, you're not alone. Not only am I saying that, not only is our church filled with people who have grieved and who continue to grieve, people who need that, let's look no further than Christ himself, who in that shortest verse of the Bible wept at the news of the death of Lazarus. Why did he weep? It was because he had a friend die. It's that simple. He had a friend who died, and in his humanity, that hurt. It brought him to tears. He grieved the death of his friend. So, grief is real. Second, you're not alone. And finally, know that you're cared for, again, by me. You're cared for by others here in our church. But your Heavenly Father, He does care for you. In our grief, sometimes it, it, is, it can be difficult it can be hard sometimes to feel it. It may not feel very tangible, very touchable, but your Heavenly Father cares for you. He waits for you. Truth be told, you may not find immediate relief because I don't want you to think, oh, it, uh, why doesn't it just happen automatically? Sometimes it doesn't. But you will find His consolation when you wait patiently for Him. So again, I uh, encourage you, encourage you to do a few things. If you're facing grief, don't bottle it up. Put that out there in the form of prayer. Uh, write a journal, possibly, as Lewis did, as we're going to look at. Reach out to others. Just let them know, I, I need to talk. 
But most of all, deal with it. And by deal with it, I don't mean throw it away. I don't mean act like it's not there. I mean really travel through it. I would love to hear from anyone that that is going through that process. So I close by just saying God bless, and I look forward to seeing you next time.